The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. An Old Testament reading from the prophet Amos. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead and with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kur, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. God, we thank you for your word. Imagine the movie you're watching beginning with two faceless men who are putting on their shoes. That's the scene. That's what you see is just shoes. And the first scene, the first set of hands are white, manicured, moisturized hands deliberately lacing up a pair of really nice, pristine Fifth Avenue black leather Oxfords. And just above the hands, you see gold cufflinks holding together a starched shirt. And just above those cufflinks, you see the pinstripe of an Italian custom-made suit. And behind the hands that you see lacing up the shoes, through a mammoth dressing closet, you see Bedroom windows framing a 60th floor view of downtown Manhattan. See that? And cut away to a second set of hands. Hands that are hurriedly scurrying and securing the fraying Velcro on a second hand pair of sketchers. This man's hands are stained, they're cracked, and they're black. His nails are overgrown with who knows what lodged underneath them. And they're quickly picking off a piece of mud on the uniform that he didn't have time to wash because he worked a double. And you hear his wife's singing voice at the door of their studio apartment saying, Honey, I'm heading out. I love you and I'll see you later tonight. That's the second scene. 
Only the man wouldn't see her later that night. Because the first set of manicured hands liked what he saw on the street that morning when he saw this man's wife. And he had his cronies discreetly pull her from the sidewalk and throw her into a limo. And he had his violent way with her and then left her for dead behind a dumpster on the corner of 66th and Broadway. And the crime that he committed was never solved. And the victim's husband, the man in the Skechers, didn't have enough money to hire a decent lawyer or a decent detective. And he certainly didn't have the social clout to generate any kind of public outcry or concern. The offender was never caught for what he did. In fact, he went on that night to perform the ribbon-cutting ceremony for a new nonprofit aimed at tackling homelessness. And he gained hundreds of thousands of likes on his social media page. Justice was never served. And to make it worse, the victim's husband, the wife, The wife's husband grew in bitterness and resentment over living in a white man's world. And now, years later, he's playing out these vengeful, shoot-em-up fantasies of staining those starched shirts with lots of blood. And the perpetrator, still uncaught, washing his hands of the incident, With enough money that lines his pockets and power enough to influence opinions to keep anyone from sniffing him as a rat. It's not an easy heartwarming story for a Sunday morning, is it? But it's one necessary to begin to hear the words of the prophet Amos. When we hear a story like this, I would hope what is generated in each one of us is righteous anger and a call for justice. We see the guilty go free and the guilty are going unpunished and this is not okay. The victims are left forgotten. The victims' families are just dismissed and it is not okay. Like the late Norm MacDonald famously commented after the O.J. Simpson verdict on Saturday Night Live, this just in, murder is now legal in the state of California. In our fallen condition, we typically see and do two things when faced with injustice of any kind. We might become self-appointed avengers, (laughs) Taking matters into our own hands, taking matters of justice into our own feeble hands, or even more strangely, we become like our aggressors. If you know what the Stockholm Syndrome is, this was the phenomenon that occurred when hostages began to bond with their captors and started to look more and more like the ones who had hurt them or who had sinned against them. Take our story that I told you at the beginning. It's the victim's husband who's now becoming like a murderer himself. The opening to the book of Amos begins by assuring us of this. The Lord will right every wrong. 
There is nothing outside of his sight lines. He sees it all. And in a series of seven judgments against Israel's offenders, these are nations that are surrounding Israel, seven judgments where we're going to cover over the next three weeks, the Lord is giving assurance to us that he knows the crimes which have been committed against Israel. He has had enough of it. And he will execute certain and righteous judgment to the wrongs that have been committed. We need to know that the Lord is not passive when it comes to wrongdoing. He is perfect. He is righteous. And the Lord delivers his righteousness to every single wrong that has ever been committed. Every wrong, every wrong, he will right. So we, as the hearers of Amos' word today need to believe the truth that the Lord is the writer of every wrong. And then, in knowing that, we need to respond by seeking first His righteousness. So I want to ask the question this morning, what does seeking first His righteousness look like for us? When we want to go Iron Man or Black Widow on our oppressors, Or when we become numb to these injustices and just become like our unrighteous neighbors. Or when we give in to hopelessness and believe, you know what? Nothing is ever going to change. Is the Lord going to even do anything? What does seeking first His righteousness mean? Two ways that we're called this morning to seek first the Lord's righteousness. First, we are called to seek His response to wrongs. Seek his response to wrongdoings. And second, we are called to seek first his remedy for wrongs. First, we're going to seek first his response to wrongs. I'm going to spend a majority of time here today in this part of the sermon because it helps us prepare us for weeks that are to come. In order to understand God's response to wrongs, We need to walk through God's righteous response found in each of these three statements. And if you look in your worship guide, you see three individual statements marked out by the words, thus says the Lord. And we're going to look at the pattern in these three judgments. Because the Lord is responding the same way in all three. He's responding to wrongs like a judge making a ruling. What you're going to see in all three of these judgments is first the judge's qualifications. You see the judge's patient character. You see the judge's fair verdict. And then you see the judge's swift sentencing. So look with me. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. How does it begin? It begins with the judge's qualifications. Thus says the Lord. Amos wants to make it clear that what he is bringing to Israel is not his own words. These words have the authority of the one who made heaven and earth. There's no playing around with these words. These are not opinions of a man. These are a truth from God. And for the first two, he also signs his name, says the Lord, in case there was any doubt who was speaking here. 
What is about to be said is true. This is not an op-ed. This is truth. Notice also who the Lord is addressing in each of these rulings. He's not addressing the nations that he's judging. But he's addressing Israel herself. Why? Why is he doing that? Why isn't he just talking to the nations about that? Why is he telling Israel all about this? Because he's showing them in his response that what Israel has been miffed about, frustrated about, angry about with their neighbors, God is going to do something about. I am the Lord. I am taking care of what you see and what I see. So we see the judges' qualifications in the thus says the Lord. But then we see the patient character of the judge in verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 9. That phrase, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Three, four. What, what is all of that about when you see those numbers? Well, many believe, many commentators believe this is an equation. Kids, easy enough. Three plus four equals what? Seven. And if you know the scriptures like the Israelites would know the scriptures, seven is a mark of completeness, of wholeness. It's the adding up of their full amount of sin. We need to see in this phrase both the character of God who is slow to anger because it's three plus four. He's enduring wrong upon wrong upon wrong. But we also need to see a just God whose judgment may take a while in ruling. But once it comes, he is swift in responding. You see that I will not revoke the punishment. Enough is enough is what the Lord is saying. I'm done. I have made my decision and here it is. So you see the judge's qualifications. You see the patient character of the judge. And the third thing you see in all three of these judgments is the specific verdict of what wrong has been done. We need to know the specific wrongs named here because it stirs in us a confidence in this righteous judge. The Israelites are hearing firsthand from God that the beefs that they had with their enemies, God has too. Look at the first one. In verse 3, for Damascus, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The Aramaeans, the first enemy of Israel, whose capital was Damascus, was under the rule of what you'll see, Haziel and Ben-Hadad, his son. And they treated a conquered people in the city of Gilead like objects. Like things, not like human beings. There are rules to war. And they broke all the rules. You see that threshing sledge of iron. What is that? That was used to crush stalks of wheat. By using this heavy sled that the horses would pull. And underneath it, it had these iron knives. To help split the grain up. And many believe the Aramaeans in conquering the city of Gilead laid God's people down prostrate on the ground and ran that thresher over them, shredding them to pieces. 
And we have biblical evidence of this kind of awful treatment in 2 Kings 8 with another prophet, Elisha, who was talking to Hazael, who was going to become the king. And he's weeping as he's talking to Hazael, knowing what Hazael is going to do to God's people. This is what Elijah says. You will set on fire their fortresses. Imagine the screaming horror of hearing houses burning with people in them. And you will kill their young men with the sword. Maybe part of war. But then listen to this. And you will dash into pieces their little ones. Okay, we're getting further from just rules of war here. And listen to this one. And you will rip open their pregnant women. Okay. People are being devalued as objects. God's image bearers, women, children, unborn children being slaughtered to say, we're in charge here. Just imagine if you can for a second, the horror of having your pregnant wife or your two-year-old son or grandson cut to pieces like that. Enough, the Lord says, enough. And then in verse six, he talks to Gaza. They carried into exile a whole people to Edom. Here we see the judge's verdict on the Philistines' crime. That they delivered the people of Israel over to their worst enemy. Why? So they could make a profit out of them. The Philistines, we know through history, didn't care about people. They cared about how they could use people. And so they just sold them off into slavery. They trafficked them. Imagine having your daughter or your granddaughter swept up by a drug lord and confined to a life of prostitution. Enough, the Lord says, enough. And probably an even worse smack in the face in verse 9. Tyre. What did they do? They delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Tyre, Tyre was a trade city near Israel. And Tyre was like middle managers. Tyre was like the Art Vandalay. They were experts at importing and exporting things. And they were the neighbors of Israel that Israel thought, you know, we can trust Tyre. They take care of us. They work with us in this brotherhood, this covenant of brotherhood. Guess what happened? They were betrayed. They had their own people treated as goods, as slaves, to be exported over to their enemies. Again, to make a profit in attempt to keep the peace with the Philistines. That's what Tyre did against Israel. Imagine, if you will, like your next door neighbor, who you borrow eggs and milk and snowblowers from, saying to the Nazis... They're hiding in the basement. Enough, the Lord says, enough. We seek first the Lord's righteousness by seeking his response. And you see his response. He's a judge who made the law. He's a judge who sees every crime. He's a judge who says enough is enough. Some questions I want us to ask whether we are seeking the Lord's response first. Why did Israel need to hear these pronouncements about these other nations? There are a number of reasons, but primarily they needed to trust God's judgment to be right 
and true. When he says these words, they're going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, all this happened. So that when he judges them, they go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, all that happened. We don't do well with this. We want to dole out God's judgment to those we see in the wrong, but we don't want to see the same wrong in ourselves. That's why it's so important we seek the Lord's righteous response first. Because if we seek our response first, guess what happens? We can guarantee on some level our response will not be righteous. One of the questions we might ask is, are you using when you're judging things that are going on around you, are you using God's word and God's law as the basis for your judgments? Or are you relying on secondary sources, including your own letter of the law, to understand any wrongs done to you or to the people that you love? Seek his face first to remind you who is judge and who is not in the courtroom of righteousness. Seek his face first to remind you that he hates the sin that you're seeing around you even more than you do. But trust that his slow to anger judgment over the wrong is coming and it will be complete. Seek his face to remind you that as much as you believe the person or the people group or the political party are getting away with murder, they're not. The Lord is able to see behind every locked door, every virtual privacy network, every lie that's not been given light. And seek his face too to remind you that if you spot a speck of sin nine times out of ten, you've got the plank buried in your own eye. I love these passages because they speak against our culture's view that God's judgment and justice is a bad thing. If your family member were the victim of any of these crimes... Wouldn't you rejoice that someone sees what happened and more importantly is going to do something about it? Why do we why do we get on God about his judgment? He's going to do something about every wrong been done to us. Our culture wants to take charge of justice. You see that in our culture today. How are we doing of taking charge of justice? Uh Just look on social media. We're merciless. We are harsh. We are canceling everyone until we're the only one left standing. We must seek the Lord's response to wrongs. But what does seeking his remedy to wrongs look like? It means us seeking a judgment that is exact. A judgment that is fair. A judgment that is just. That's what you want from a judge. Fairness and exactness. Look at each of these punishments given out to the surrounding nations at the end of these verses. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 10. What is common in all of them? Fire and swallowing up. An all-consuming fire and a complete destruction of strongholds. Friends, this punishment that the Lord is doling out is fitting the crime. Fire and destruction of strongholds were the prime way of war in destroying a community. 
You would go after the gate bars, which were the bars that held the gates together. You'd break those. You'd go after the walls, those things that locked and secured the city so that you could barge in with your fiery torches to gut and destroy buildings. You'd go after the key leaders as the Lord does. Hazael, Ben-Hadad, those who hold scepters of power. You'd go after the leaders. You would also destroy the strongholds, those populated cities, those key cities like Damascus, like the Valley of Avon, like the Valley of Beth Eden, or the place of Beth Eden, like Gaza, Ashdod, Ascalon, Ekron, Tyre. You go after these key cities, and down with these cities goes a community. The Lord is inflicting upon Israel's enemies the same exact military tactics that have been inflicted upon Israel. Fiery judgment and utter destruction. This isn't the Lord being unfair to these people. This is the Lord giving to these people an equal, exact, measured dose of their own military medicine. I can trust a God who will give to the murderers of 9-11 what is theirs. As terrorists burned down the World Trade Center with jet fuel and sent innocent people jumping to their horrific death, there is a God who will give those enemies the jet fuel of his wrath and the feeling of falling which never finds a floor. It is hell. His remedy for wrongs is righting the wrongs with exact judgment and exact justice. But I hope as you're hearing me describe the Lord's wrath, you might be getting a little uncomfortable. Because you have to be asking, why is the Lord saying all of this to Israel? Why isn't he just saying it to the enemies? Because Israel, friends, has become the enemy. Israel has become guilty of every wrong described in these surrounding nations because Israel is the man. I began this morning's sermon with a hypothetical situation, that story contrasting two men, the Skechers and the Oxfords. But it's not completely hypothetical. It really happened, just not in Manhattan. It happened in Jerusalem. It's a loose telling of David and Uriah the Hittite. David was the king, the one wearing the Oxfords. Uriah was the servant warrior, the one wearing the Skechers. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was stolen from Uriah. And Uriah, instead, the one who died. David's prophet, Nathan, in an ingenious move of wisdom, told David the story much like I started the sermon this morning. A story of injustice. No, no, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare take someone's wife from them. That's awful. And as soon as David expressed complete outrage and demanded death for that guilty one, Nathan locked eyes with him and shouted, You are the man. You are the man. These oracles of judgment against Israel's neighbors are stirring Israel up to be angry and demand death until they hear the phrase, you are the man. All-consuming fire is ready to be poured out upon your strongholds, Israel, upon your strongholds, church. 
upon your strongholds, people of all saints. The remedy for sin is God's complete and an exacting judgment. So I ask you, Aramaeans of all saints, how have you treated God's image bearers like objects? Have you treated someone else's daughter as your pornographic plaything? Have you barked at a customer service rep like they're a dog, not a person? Have you used abusive words and sarcasm to tear at someone's soul? Philistines of all saints, how have you used God's image bearers for your own gain? Have you rejected an entire race of people because they might steal your job? Have you paid qualified women less than men to pad a business's bottom line? Have you selected to be with only people who can add something to your life? Tyrians of all saints. How have you turned on friends for your own protection? Are you not standing up for the weak or the meek? Are you befriending only influential people so you can get a leg up? Are you name calling a neighbor to help you climb up the social ladder? You are the man. You are the woman. The remedy for our sin against humanity is the all-consuming fire of the Lord's judgment and the tearing down of every single stronghold. That's the remedy. Are you ready for the Lord's response to your sin? Because the remedy is severe. His wrath will burn. His response will crush. His fire will destroy every one of your strongholds, every one of your securities. But the Lord wrote these words of Amos to not leave Israel without hope. The Lord spoke these words to move Israel, to move you, to see the remedy of God's three plus four equals seven. Complete justice is found in God's complete pardon. There is a remedy of exact judgment and he offers to carry your guilty verdict and your severe punishment onto himself. A man of sorrows who would be treated not as he deserved. He would be threshed under the whip of 39 lashes with his flesh being torn out and off. He would be sold off for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed by a friend's kiss. Every injustice Israel faced from their enemies, Christ experienced himself. So that he would not only share in our injustices like this is wrong, but so that he would also be able to carry our judgment. God's mercy on us is God's justice on Christ. Full fire, full devouring, full destruction of every sinful stronghold. The judgment for our treating human beings as less than God's good creation can either fall upon us or it can fall upon him in faith. The response to wrongs 
is asking the Lord to make my wrongs right by allowing Christ to plead before God's holy fire, I am the man in my place. I am the woman in your place. Enemies of God being offered friendship of God through the remedy where justice and mercy meet the cross of Jesus Christ. The remedy to wrongs is perfect justice. Will that perfect justice fall on you or will it fall in faith on Christ? Who is the man, him or you? The Lord will right every wrong with judgment. Seek his response, his remedy, his righteousness in his son so that you might live and that he might live in you. Let's pray.